Welcome everyone to a special episode of Conduct Detrimental. As always, I'm Dan Lust and I'm joined by my friend and cohort, Dan Wallach. What's up, Dan? How are you doing, Dan? Uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode. You know, in my prior career, I was an appellate lawyer practicing in federal and state courts of appeal around the country. Today's episode truly is an appellate lawyer's paradise. We're going to be focusing on the city of St. Louis and the St. Louis Stadium Authority's lawsuit against the National Football League, the St. Louis Rams, Stan Kroenke, and all 32 NFL teams and individual team owners. This one is right in our wheelhouse. So I'm really looking forward to talking about the case, the different issues, and bringing on our special guest. I guess as a reminder, this episode is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. You know, we talk a lot about issues at the lower court levels. This is an issue uh, that certainly touches upon appellate issues. So if you're looking for some help for your bar prep, Themis Bar Review is certainly the place to go. That said, Dan, we have a special guest this week. It is Ben Fisher of the Sports Business Journal. You know, this case is one that has been kicking around in court for a while. It's a case if you just talk about potential damages awards, it's maybe the biggest case that we've ever discussed on this podcast. That said, Dan, it's the first time you and I are bringing it up on the show. And I imagine for most of our listeners, they have not heard anything about this, this lawsuit, about this case. The long and short about the cases, Dan, you, you kind of addressed. The St. Louis Rams, people know them, the greatest show on turf with Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce. And there's a history of football in St. Louis with the Rams. Now that team, as we got closer to 2010, 2012, there started to be some inkling that the Rams, the franchise, was not happy with the stadium. And they made some overtures to say, hey, you need to fix the stadium. And the stadium wasn't properly fixed. We'll get into it with Ben. There started to be some kind of smoke there. Then all of a sudden, you took a blink, and the Los Angeles Rams franchise was now kind of born. The owners of the Rams asked the NFL to move the team to St. Louis, and they obliged. And then all of a sudden, in the wake of this big move, right, and the Los Angeles Rams obviously made the Super Bowl quickly thereafter with Sean McVay and Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, you know, then you look, kind of look back, city of St. Louis really wasn't letting go of this, of this lawsuit. And they felt that they were scorned. They felt they were misled during negotiations. And they felt they, you know, kind of importantly, this lawsuit expanded a ton of money trying to save the St. Louis Rams and all for naught because the Los Angeles Rams were always going to happen. And Dan, we, we allude to this, but that there is an allegation here that the, you know, Stan Kroenke and the family always planned to move the team to Los Angeles regardless of what the St. Louis Rams did. So, you know, that's really where this, this lawsuit lies. Did St. Louis do enough? And did, you know, the Rams franchise act in bad faith in moving the team to Los Angeles? And if that's true, Dan, right, we know that there's a liability phase of the trial and there's a damages phase of the trial. Assuming there is liability here on behalf of the Rams franchise to the city of St. Louis, how much could that number be, Dan? And that's when you started tweeting about this is when we knew we had to turn this into a podcast. I have to give credit here to Mike Florio. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have been sort of casually following the case, but Mike has been all over it for pro football talk, as has to a lesser extent Dan Kaplan for The Athletic. And Mike, you know, just, you know, wondered, like, why isn't the national media covering this case? And, you know, his message, or at least his article resonated with me. And the more I began to look at this case, what jumped out at me wasn't that this was just simply about money damages and, and maybe one of the reasons, you know, you and I glossed over it and a lot of other commentators didn't really give it a lot of play was the city of St. Louis was not getting the Rams back. Ultimately, this case would be dismissed like the city of Oakland's lawsuit or would settle for, you know, some many millions of dollars. And ultimately, who really cares about the exchange of money in an out-of-court settlement? But when I look more closely at the complaint, a big component part of the city of St. Louis's damage claim is the disgorgement 
of the LA Rams' increased franchise value in moving from St. Louis to Los Angeles. Now, at the time that this lawsuit was filed in 2017, Forbes does their annual you know, NFL franchise valuations. At the time the suit was filed, it was estimated that the, that the Los Angeles Rams franchise increased in value by $750 million by virtue of the move from St. Louis to LA. Well, but we're now in 2021 and the most recent Forbes analysis pegs the franchise as being worth almost $2 million more than it was in 2017. So we have a gain of 1.5 million from when it was in St. Louis to now being worth, according to Forbes, $4.8 billion, which is a jump of 3.3 billion and some significant chunk of that is attributable to the fact that the franchise is now in La La Land and not in the city of St. Louis. So if that is part of the damage recovery, we're talking a $3 billion plus case, along with the disgorgement of the NFL's relocation fee. So when you add up all the different compensatory categories, and we're going to debate you know, with Ben whether they're recoverable under various theories of liability. But once you put that into the equation and recognize that punitive damages are going to be several multiples of compensatory damages, one can clearly see a pathway to the NFL potentially being on the hook for $10 billion or more. And with Stan Kroenke agreeing to indemnify the National Football League and its member clubs, that's a figure that could essentially wipe out Stan Kroenke's entire net worth, should yeah. it have ever come to that. I think the reason that this topic has relevance outside of St. Louis. And I know, because you and I have spoke to him, I went on the radio in St. Louis this week, St. Louis fans care about this lawsuit. St. Louis media is covering this lawsuit very closely. The national media has not, but that I think is kind of an oversight. And Dan, you know, we got into it with Ben a little bit, and obviously Ben is the staff writer over at the Sports Business Journal. He's, he's aware of this. But there are conversations happening in other markets, namely Buffalo. You know, that's my team, the Buffalo Bills, where they're thinking of leaving, right? So you have to ask yourself, these protocols, right? The Article 4.3 of the NFL's Constitution and Bylaws has traditionally been put in place to try to say, hey, fans, we're not moving. As long as we have a good relationship and the team's making money and they're well-supported, we can't really relocate. It's going to have to pass this vote. But if you've been doing all the right stuff and you're going through and you're, and you're acting in good faith, you're making diligent efforts by the club to stand, the team can't move. And now that particular question is basically being put on trial. Does this guideline even have any relevance? Does it really matter if the NFL doesn't follow it? And then it's the question is, does it matter what the home market does to save the team? Or can the NFL just do what they want at the end of the day? And Dan, you raise a really interesting point about damages, right? This is the other question. St. Louis is asking for this giant windfall of billions of dollars and they're saying, hey, you guys made so much money. I mean, the, the part that's kind of lost on this conversation is sports valuations have been going up independent if you move from L.A., right, from St. Louis to L.A., they've been going up a lot. So there's a question of whether damages are speculative or, or what portion are speculative. It's kind of like a law student's dream, this case. In this case, it talks about unjust enrichment, contract, fraud. It really hits every element of our legal uh, knowledge as a, as a one L. And, and certainly for lawyers, I, I know this case is very fascinating in our circles. Yeah, and maybe we'll end up on a, on a future bar exam in the state of Missouri and, and a famous is really on top of its game. Maybe they'll include a couple of questions about the St. Louis Rams relocation litigation because you got issues of, okay, contract, breach of contract. Is there a contract? Is there a third-party beneficiary recognized under the law? There are various quasi-contractual theories such as unjust enrichment. You have tort claims, fraud claims, damage issues, appeals, discovery. This is a case that, you know, quite literally has almost everything in you, the, you know, the universe of litigation baked into one case and going forward, what really 
fascinates about the case besides the billion dollar judgment possibility is whether the relocation guidelines promulgated by the NFL could in the future, depending on the outcome of this case and, and the Raiders lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, those two cases could ultimately determine whether the relocation guidelines could be weaponized by municipalities in future cases. That's okay. the long-term implication of this lawsuit besides the money. Again, this podcast is sponsored by Themis. We'll talk to our friends at Themis, see if we get some sports law questions on their bar prep. I think that would go over well with our audience. So that said, we mentioned we had Ben Fisher on the on the show today. Ben is the NFL staff writer for the Sports Business Journal. He's on Twitter at Ben Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R-S-B-J, Ben Fisher, SBJ on Twitter. The reason Ben is on the show today, Ben was kind of researching the story. He reached out to myself. He reached out to you. And then, you know, we just kind of said, you know, we were thinking of doing this podcast and we said, hey, you know, we, we kind of pride ourselves at being at the intersection of sports law. And obviously we have a lot of business connotations. And we said, you know what, Ben's the guy at Sports Business Journal. Let's all get together for a conversation. So Dan, unless you have anything further, we can kick it to our interview with Ben, which I'm really excited to get into. Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Um, without further ado, here's Ben Fisher of the Sports Business Journal. Ben, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's funny. Dan and I both spoke to you this week regarding this St. Louis Rams case that's been ramping up. And I know we all share some of the same thoughts as to why this is not being covered you know, on a more national level. This is a really big lawsuit, as Dan has been tweeting about, a lawsuit that can very quickly get into the billions of dollars. So I know a lot of people listening to this are not familiar with this saga. So we wanted to have you on, Ben. Obviously, you're the staff writer for the sports or staff NFL writer for the sports business journal. So you seem to be the go-to source for this case. So Ben, why don't you tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit about how this kind of dispute got started. Just a little bit of the facts of the case you think lead us into this kind of bombshell of a lawsuit. Well, as we all know, the St. Louis Rams became the Los Angeles Rams in 2016. And the, the history there in St. Louis is exactly what's being litigated now. In January of 2015, the Rams moved to a year-to-year -year lease at their facility in St. Louis, and that was triggered by a clause in the original lease in St. Louis that said if their facility did not remain in the top 20% of all NFL facilities, then they were, after the end of that lease, that they were entitled to uh, go to year-to-year. -year. It, was, it was a very team-friendly lease clause that basically obligated St. Louis, St. Louis County, and the stadium authority there to be in a position of perpetual upgrades that St. Louis was essentially guaranteed by contract in that lease, a top tier NFL stadium under all circumstances. And that didn't happen. You know, there was certainly some amount of capital expenditure that went into the stadium in St. Louis, but it didn't happen. And that triggered the year to year. And by then, it is already publicly known that uh, Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, had acquired land in California, in Inglewood, where SoFi Stadium now currently sits. So the question is, you know, exactly what the NFL had promised and is legally obligated to do to St. Louis in that whole process. But anyone, any Rams fan can see the writing on the wall for a couple of years leading up to the actual relocation in 2016. But, you know, now we're deciding, you know, what exactly the Rams said and who they said it to and how truthful that was and whether they crossed the line legally in any of that process. I think the only thing to add, and then we'll kind of go into the, the legal legalese, right? This is a time in, in the NFL where there hadn't really been that much movement. And all of a sudden, at the same time, three teams try to move to L.A. That's the Raiders, the Chargers, and the Rams. So, you know, it, and, it's, and we're going to skip forward a little bit. But obviously, you know, moving to L.A., moving to these hot markets, be it L.A. or, or Las Vegas, 
that does tend to increase the value of these teams. So, no, just maybe serendipitously, three teams had this idea at the same time. And who wins the sweepstakes? Really, kind of everybody wins, right? Every, everybody gets to move to, the, oh, those three teams get to move to their preferred spots. The Rams, the Chargers, and of course, the Raiders. So it's a situation, right? You have three teams trying to move to LA, but only one ends up with this kind of mega, mega lawsuit. The likes of which we really haven't seen really in professional sports where, you know, Dan, I know you're going to get into it, where this amount of money under this under the laws of the state of Missouri can really lead to, you know, it's not crazy to say a billion dollar judgment with the trial being tried in St. Louis, in front of a St. Louis judge, in front of a St. Louis jury. That's a little bit of the backdrop here. It's a unique kind of albatross of a lawsuit. Home territory is cooking. Well, you make a good point about putting this in the broader context of NFL relocation. And that's really a three-decade story. It actually comes back to the original relocation guidelines, not the original relocation guidelines that are such an important part of the case. The relocation guidelines written in 1999 came after this extraordinary period of stadium construction in the NFL or during this period where lots of teams moved. There were credible threats of lots of teams moving and the relocation guidelines that are now being litigated were a reaction to that widespread fear of teams moving around the NFL excessively so in the 90s. And that all died down. I guess I should add, which is probably important context, in, in the 15 years preceding this, from 82 to 97, you have a pretty weird flurry of moves. And I'm going to read the years, and you're going to see why Ben is saying that these relocation policies need to be revisited. 1982, the Raiders moved to Los Angeles. Okay. And that's 1984, the Baltimore Colts moved to Indianapolis. There's a whole 30 for 30 about the Baltimore Colts leaving. Okay. 1988, the St. Louis Cardinals, not the baseball team, the football team, St. Louis Cardinals, move over to Phoenix, become the Arizona Cardinals. 95, the Raiders moved to Oakland. Also in 95, the Los Angeles Rams, who we're talking about here, moved to St. Louis. So this is a return to Los Angeles. And in 1996, the Browns moved to Baltimore. In 1997, the Houston Oilers moved to become the Tennessee Titans. In the four years preceding 1999, you had the Raiders move to Oakland in 95, the Rams moved to St. Louis in 95, the Browns moved to Baltimore in 96, and the Oilers moved to Tennessee in 97. So that's the backdrop when these relocation rules get get visited. And so, Ben, I, I know you and I spent a lot of time talking about this. The question is, when they wrote these relocation policies, who did they write them to protect? Did they write them to protect the NFL's interests? Or did they write them to protect these home markets where people are leaving? And that's that's a really big question for this lawsuit. Dan, I'll, I'll turn it to you to kind of to walk us into this case, but it's certainly a very important backdrop we had to get into. Well, you know, Dan, you, you ticked off a number of teams. I mean, if you tally all the NFL teams that have relocated from one state to another, that's 25% of the National Football League. And by the way, you're leaving out the New York Jets and the New York Giants, 1976 and 1984, if you want to get technical about this. All right. So Ben, Mike Florio, Dan Kaplan, and yourself have been part of a small cauldron of reporters who've been writing about this lawsuit. I have my own ideas about this broader issue, but at least within the national media, why is this case only getting traction right now. And I'll just tell you right off the top, my viewpoint is that just generally speaking, the country is not going to be as fascinated about a money case, which is money changing hands. It does not involve the relocation or forced relocation of the franchise back from LA to St. Louis. And there've been so many of these lawsuits over the years. And then layered on top of that is it's impossible to get transparency in the St. Louis state court system. So it is almost this air of mystery 
around the lawsuit that depends upon reporting after the fact. What say you about this issue? And it's about to really heat up nationally. Right. And this is the week where we saw a lot of the explicit criticism of national media for not covering this case more. And I hope what I'm about to say doesn't come off as overly defensive. Look, at the end of the day, I take the criticism of at face value, it's it's it, there. People are right. This is a big case. Maybe we were a little late to, to realize that from a national media standpoint. But a couple of points, as you said, this is state court, not federal court. So online access is hit and miss. It, I mean, literally every time you get into a local court system, it's a different system as far as you know validating a, a subscription to get into the case. It's hard to do. And in St. Louis, most of this is redacted. The NFL has you know been able to file much of the substantive facts in this case under seal. So unlike a federal case that is completely open, you really have to either develop very deep relationships in St. Louis with people who send you documents and you know call you when something happens, or you have to be there at the courthouse, literally, to, to follow this. And a lot of this has played out in the pandemic footing where there have been either strict prohibitions on travel at uh, media companies or you know just a lot more questions asked about the quick jump over to St. Louis to, to get into this. And also, you know, maybe this was a misjudgment, but there was a widespread belief that this case was going nowhere for a long time. You know, that, yes, it's a very sexy lawsuit, but also, you know, civil litigation in a, in a business context, it can last for years and years and years. And you might not have a real news event for, for months or years at a time in this case. There's a certain amount of, look, it's hard to get to, it's hard to understand. We'll have chances to get into this later. And besides, it's just not quite right for coverage, I think is the mindset there so far. Certainly it is now. I think the Oakland Raiders lawsuit brought by the city of Oakland against the Raiders and the NFL, that might have poisoned the well because that had some similar characteristics where, of course, it was an antitrust lawsuit, but the city of Oakland traveled down a similar breach of contract legal theory that the city was the intended third-party beneficiary of the NFL relocation guidelines. A federal court judge in California dismissed the lawsuit, addressed those claims, found that they lacked merit. And then earlier this year, I think LA County Superior Court judge dismissed a state law version of that same theory. So I think at least in the public domain, among the minds of people who follow these kinds of lawsuits, to those of us who watched the Oakland lawsuit play out, that seemed almost predictable of the result in St. Louis without, of course, taking into account the time-honored tradition of home cooking in a local court system. People like me, until probably the motion to relocate the trial failed, I think up until that point, most of us would have said, yes, this is theoretically a very big case, but it almost certainly will not last a trial. And even if there is a newsworthy result to this, it's likely years away. And I think those were misimpressions, uh, clearly, but they were driven, in fact, in part by the fact that we saw two similar cases go nowhere in California. I think it's time we kind of get into the parties and the players in this case, right? You have the city of St. Louis, you have St. Louis County, and the St. Louis Regional Convention and Sports Complex Authority, and they're suing the National Football League, and they're basically suing all 32 NFL owners. And the causes of action that we're dealing with are really threefold. There's some nuance to it. But it's essentially breach of contract, unjust enrichment, and some element of fraud. Now, Ben, you kind of laid it out at the beginning. This element of fraud, all these causes of action kind of from the same common nucleus of facts. There was conversations occurring between the city of St. Louis and the Kroenke family and, you know, the, the Rams family. And the question is whether those conversations were done and whether they were negotiating in good faith 
or whether they always plan to move to Los Angeles the entire time. So, you know, Ben, you laid it out and, and people can, can look this up online. You know, it, it, the Rams made a lot of improvements to the stadium. It was an, actually an arbitrator who looked at, you know, whether the Rams stadium improvements allowed them to move into the top 25% in the stadium. It's this interesting arbitration that occurred between the city of St. Louis and the Rams. The Rams were saying, you know, in the Crunky family, when I'm saying the Rams, hey, the city of St. Louis didn't do enough. This, they're not in the top 25% of all stadiums. This actually went to an arbitration, I think, right around 2013. And, you know, the city of St. Louis lost. So some, I guess you want to call an independent arbitrator, said that the stadium was not up to par. Okay. So put yourself for a second, you know, in the, in the shoes of, of Stan Kroenke, the owner of franchise. If you move the team to LA, certainly, right, we've seen it in retrospect. Team valuations go up if you can move to a big market like, like in LA. He says to himself, you know, hypothetically, right, the city of St. Louis objectively did not do enough to get me out. So I'm going to start exploring other options. He's entitled to do that, but he has to go through the proper channels, right? That's the whole purpose of this relocation policy. So what is being alleged here is that the NFL owners and the NFL, by their voting policy, didn't actually follow their relocation guidelines. This 1999 guidelines that Ben was talking about. And kind of within that, they didn't follow best good faith efforts. And then, you know, number two, right, the unjust enrichment that the Los Angeles Rams have now become a, you know, multi-billion dollar valued franchise because of this, you know, alleged fraud and alleged breach of contract. So Ben and Dan, we've circled around this, right? This is a case that's filed in the state of Missouri, in the city of St. Louis, Missouri Circuit Court. It's in front of Judge Christopher McGraw. There's been motions in this case, and Ben acknowledges, to move the case to a different county within the state. That has failed. Motions in this case to try to compel discovery of personal finances from the owners. Those have been denied. Those are being appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court. There hasn't really been that much substantive that's happened in this case, but those that have come across the judge, the judge goes, no, I, I want to put the kind of the feet to the fire. So here we are with this kind of mega lawsuit that's been kicking around for years. The thing that happened this past week, Ben, is why, you know, and we'll take a little bit of blame for this. We have not addressed this topic on the podcast. Summary judgment motion is filed on behalf of the NFL and all their owners. And they said, we want to get this case kicked out of court. So if you're listening to this and you're a lawyer, law student, you know what summary judgment is. Summary judgment is a motion that says, you know what? There are no factual issues left for a jury to decide. A judge can decide this right now as a matter of law and say, you know what? These aren't triable issues of fact for the jury. This is clear cut. There was no contract. Even if there was a contract, the city of St. Louis can't be this intended third party beneficiary. They're not mentioned in the contract. No one knew that they were going to potentially sue from this. And then the second question is, right? unjust enrichment. Can't they just move to Los Angeles? Why do they have to be disgorged of these benefits? And then the question, right, the third one, the Rams or the Kroenke family and, and the NFL and the owners are going to argue, you know, where was the fraud here? We tried in good faith to move and there's no issue of fact for the jury. That said, you know, Judge Christopher McGraw, again, sitting in St. Louis, denies all requests for relief. Summary judge motion is denied its entirety. And now we're on a path. We're steamrolling ahead. This case either gets settled or we proceed through discovery in an expedited time frame. I think the trial date, Ben, you and I spoke, I think it is January. Obviously, they're going to appeal the summary judgment decision. That's not going to have any effect on that time frame. And they're certainly trying to appeal these discovery mechanisms to try to get discovery from, the, from these NFL owners. But that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. So, you know, all, all these kind of life preservers are gone. We're moving ahead. And for better or for worse, I don't think everyone necessarily agrees with the judge's decision, but we're here. And that's the reality that we're in. Well, hold on a second. You mentioned that they're going to appeal the denial of a motion for summary judgment. I mean, you cannot, in most state or federal courts around the country, appeal denials of summary judgment. You can only appeal the granting of summary judgment. But there is one whole card left for the NFL to play. There's a recent Missouri Supreme Court decision that actually granted an extraordinary writ 
through a motion or a petition for writ of prohibition. This was a case decided only a couple of months ago and that where summary judgment should have been entered but wasn't, the Missouri Supreme Court ordered the trial court to grant summary judgment in favor of the party where the lower court had denied it previously. So I think you're right. I think the NFL can pursue one more bite at the apple, but it's not going to be through a plenary appeal. It's going to be through a writ of prohibition, basically arguing that the city of St. Louis is not a third party beneficiary. And we're going to get into some of these reasons. Unjust enrichment is a limited remedy that is not available when there's a written contract. So you know, Ben, what are you hearing about further legal proceedings between now and the start of the trial, which is supposed to start January 10th or January 12th? And can you imagine the prospect of this trial bleeding into Super Bowl week, which is certainly a hypothetical possibility? What further legal proceedings are going to be taking place between now and the start of the trial date, which is in early January? Do you expect the NFL to seek further judicial review to maybe prevent the trial from taking place? For sure. I, you know, I think that the NFL's lawyers are, are aware that this is a long shot, that even if an appeal may be successful, it's not likely to prevent a trial from happening in and of itself, just because of the time frame here. And, you know, this is not the sort of emergency that a Supreme Court would, would typically be compelled to move so quickly on. But I think we should expect them to empty their, empty their chambers in terms of any and all appellate routes here, no matter how unlikely they might be to proceed. And I say that not because I've had a one-on-one conversation with uh, the chief legal officers involved here, but because of a pervasive mindset around the NFL halls of power and clubs that this is a fairly preposterous position for this judge to take. There is a strong sense of indignation that this is a deeply biased judge who is making fairly ridiculous determinations on this uh, relocation guidelines as contract. So they are motivated both by a strong desire to avoid a trial, but also like an almost emotional reaction that this is just so wrong that if we can get this case in front of any other judge who's even a half step removed from the politics of St. Louis County, they're going to start winning. You know, they've already gone to the United States Supreme Court to argue that this lawsuit should be thrown into arbitration. So obviously, given the NFL's sort of mindset and desire to avoid at all costs a trial, surely they're going to empty their chambers and use every legal route possible. And an emergency petition for writ of prohibition seems like the obvious route to take. And they would have to file that kind of motion within 30 days of the summary judgment ruling. But are you sensing that there's fear or concern within the NFL corridors about other cities potentially weaponizing the relocation guidelines? Should this go to a trial and an adverse verdict? Look, a a verdict in the Rams in St. Louis is one thing, but Stan Kroenke is a very wealthy man and and is assuming they can keep the lid on the damages to maybe say below a billion. They can talk about, you know, a a settlement and, you know, that's not a pleasant payday for anybody, but they'll get through it. Nightmare scenario is if they have multiple courses of action under a precedent that is set here for sure. So I know it's just a state court. The precedent isn't the same as if it were a federal court. But, you know, if the reason, the thing that worries them is this, this spiral. For sure. I think we should get into the relocation policy a little bit and just kind of talk about how this kind of sets up the case. We talked about the history of why this relocation policy was put into place, right? 1999, we have this flurry of moves. And, you know, I think the NFL, you have to kind of ask yourself why they came up with this policy. It seems to be a mechanism to protect against insane types of movement. So I'm I'm just going to read, this is 4.3 of the Constitution and bylaws of the NFL. The league shall have exclusive control of the exhibition of football games by member clubs within the home territory of each member. 
no member club shall have the right to transfer its franchise or playing site to a different city, either within or outside its home territory without prior approval by the affirmative vote of three-fourths of the existing members of the club. And then it goes on. It says, Article 4.3 may be available, however, if a club's viability in its home territory is threatened by circumstance that cannot be remedied by diligent efforts of the club working as appropriate in conjunction with the league office, or compelling league interests warrant a franchise relocation. So, you know, I didn't read all of 4.3, but the point is you have to make diligent efforts to work with your home territory to try to make this move. So it's put in place for a reason. Question is, and this is why the summary judgment motion is very interesting for people to read, is this a contract that can create a cause of action? So as we know as, as lawyers, right, not all agreements are going to be something that you can sue for breach out of. The question is, right, whether the owners felt they were bound by this. And then the decision kind of goes on and talks about public statements that were made by the NFL. This is this is Roger Goodell speaking to the press in December of 2015, quote, the ownership has to make a determination. Do they meet the relocation guidelines? And then NFL's executive vice president, Eric Grubman, states, the procedure is not a mystery. There will be a very detailed statement by that club as to why they think they've met the relocation guidelines. So they're talking in ways that make it seem like the teams are bound by this constitution. It's not necessarily a guideline if they're talking in this language. So then the question, it's an interesting one. Is this a contract? Is it not a contract? I think that's a really tough question and, and we can get into it. But I, I think, you know, Ben, you, you know that my brain kind of takes me to the second question. If this is a contract that can be sued under, is the city of St. Louis, the county of St. Louis, the convention center, are they a third party beneficiary that has standing to sue under this contract? So in Missouri, to be bound as a third party beneficiary, the terms of the contract must clearly express intent to benefit that party or an identifiable class of which that party is a member. When you think about the high bar that the Missouri Supreme Court sets for the establishment of third party beneficiary status, it really creates a question of law as to the contract and whether you can divine a clearly and directly expressed intent to benefit the third party beneficiary. And, and I know as in reviewing, it's a, it may be a close call, but it's one that really is vulnerable in my opinion on an appeal because while home community and home territory, community relations, fan support, the policy or the guidelines for relocation are replete with references to local authorities. Indeed, the NFL has to publish a notice in a newspaper of general circulation. But the question of whether the city is clearly and directly expressed to be an intended beneficiary seems I don't know. I mean, we could disagree on it. And ultimately, this is a question of law that a court will decide. But if the city of St. Louis is pinning its entire lawsuit, and it is not, thankfully, but if they were going to pin their entire hopes on this question of law, that is a huge gamble, given the court rulings in California on the state and federal level, which have held that, that the intended beneficiary when referring to the home territory is to advance the interests of the NFL. So this becomes, at least in my mind, a very strong ground for either an appeal following the trial or the core of an NFL's emergency petition for writ of prohibition to have summary judgment granted in its favor, at least as to that one count. I'm seeing good arguments on both sides, and it seems to be a close call. Certainly, if it's up to a St. Louis jury, St. Louis right. Rams season ticket holders, right. if there are if there were any on the jury, and certainly they're going to be excluded, you know how a local jury would probably rule. But will it stand up when it gets to the Missouri Court of Appeals and the Missouri Supreme Court? And those bodies have not yet addressed that issue in the context of the case. 
Well, I was going to say that I realized that there are multiple pleadings and there are ways for them, the ways for St. Louis to get a positive verdict without necessarily totally depending on the contract matter. But Dan Lust, I think you and I were talking the other day that in some ways that this, this is the crystallization of the issue, right? This, I mean, most of the rest of this case falls apart if this is deemed to not be a contract, right? I don't mean to oversimplify. You guys are the lawyers, but that seems to be everything to me. It's a lot, but the strongest liability count in my opinion, is the fraudulent misrepresentations. Ben, Dan, you have all these statements. I mean, the statements attributable to Stan Kroenke, 2012, 13, Jeff Fisher being told when he was hired for the head coaching job that the t- in 2011 or, or 12, that the team was going to be moving to St. Louis. Let's assume that the city and, and the stadium authority win on a fraudulent misrepresentation count. The problem with that victory is that it's almost like a parrot victory because the only recoverable damages in that instance would be the money that the city and county spent in furtherance of stadium development plans in reliance on those statements. And that would be a relatively five-year window. You wouldn't get future profits. You wouldn't get increased franchise value. You wouldn't get the NFL's relocation fee disgorged. It's basically the money you spent trying to pursue a stadium upgrade in reliance on those statements. And the complaint identifies or quantifies that number as somewhere around $17 million. The city of St. Louis is not going to trial over $17 million. They are going to trial for two big pieces of damage recovery here, which is the increased value of the Rams franchise, which is directly attributable to the move to LA. And we're going to need expert testimony on that. I mean, how much of that is attributable to other factors, not directly influenced by the move to California. And then there's also the $550 million NFL relocation fee. Those damage categories, to the extent that they are compensable, and that is an open question, that would give rise to the billion dollar type of compensatory damage verdict, which in turn would fuel a punitive damages award of five to 10 times that amount. You take those items out of the equation, you're basically left with a $20 million fraud case. And then Dan, you you didn't mention the tortious interference with business expectancy. That's a claim that if it survives and, and, and the city and county prevail on that, we're talking future lost profits. And then potentially you could get up to a $100 million you know, plus uh, compensatory damage award, which could then trigger punitive damages in excess of $1 billion. But this case will rise and fall on finding a way to include the relocation fee and the increased franchise value within recoverable damages. Fraud doesn't get you there. And I don't think breach of contract gets you there. And unjust enrichment, therefore, looms as a really important cause of action. And just to put those numbers into context quickly, if Stan Kroenke could make this go away for $17 million, he'd do it for three times that by noon today. Um, <laughs> it, this only becomes a, a, a sort of an existential or a, or a strategic threat to the NFL and Stan Kroenke if you get into those nine or ten figure numbers, I think. So, so that, that's everything, I think, when, this case, when you think of this case through a newsworthy or a financial lens. Does he have to pay for the whole thing? There are other defendants in this case that have equally, may, maybe sometimes a bigger pocket than, than the Kroenke family. So, you know, you divide that up, right? 17 million, that's, that's, that's pocket change. To certain well, I have to double check this. I should know this. So, so, so me a couple there, but I think that Kroenke has indemnified the other owners in this case. That's correct. See, a lot of the materials are redacted, but before the court was able to correct it in a, in a, a court filing made earlier this year, 
in the part that was unredacted, it was revealed, and it's, this may have also been part of his deposition testimony, that he has agreed to indemnify the other owners in the NFL for the financial consequences of this lawsuit, which means- It's very big. Which means that if he has a $10 billion net worth and the city can somehow persuade a jury to award at least a billion dollars in compensable damages, this punitive damages award has the potential, even if the NFL thinks it's, a, it's home cooking and they'll get reversed on appeal, that could wipe out his entire net worth if you take it to an extreme. It is certainly not the most likely or more likely situation to, to occur, but it's certainly out there as a theoretical possibility, which means he should want to settle this case. And even if a payment of a billion dollars were to be made, that might be getting off easy here, what the city is asking for and how close we are to, to judgment day. As of this moment, Bloomberg says Dan Kroenke is worth $11.2 billion. Let's get into this. This is a case. It's in front of a St. Louis judge, which maybe we don't all agree with his type of decisions in this case. And it's a case that's going to be tried in front of a St. Louis jury. Now, the jury pool, which you and I talked about, right? You pull members of the jury from the county in which the case is, is being heard. And you, when you have jury selection, you have this something called voir dire. And you ask the jurors, right, whether you're able to be impartial on this case. And I guess people that are fans of Mark Bulger, Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, you know, those guys will probably be taken off the jury pool if they acknowledge that out loud. But it's going to be very hard to find somebody in St. Louis that's going to, you know, even if whatever they say during jury selection, it's truly going to be able to remain impartial, you know, because the money, right, where's it going? It's going back into St. Louis. So, you know, I think that's the fear. And I think why, why Dan is, is on his tweets kind of acknowledging this, right? The jury is going to decide to some extent what the damages are in this case. And, you know, wouldn't it be in their interest to, to ask for, you know, try to, you know, hit the, hit the franchise with a very high number. So that's the scary proposition about this case. We can talk about settling for 17 million or 20 million, but the question is, and, and maybe Ben, you're, you're aware of this, what would the Rams possibly take, right? What incentive do they have? I mean, they have this lottery ticket right now. They can get all the way to the damages phase of this trial. There's a huge number that could be put out there. What are you hearing in terms of settlement, your conversations with NFL owners and, and their representatives? I don't think that the conversation is baked enough to, to have a number on that, unfortunately. I mean, when I say that Skonkonkie would settle for $17 million by noon today, that's a general assessment of the dollar figures in the context of the of the, the benefit that the LA move has given him and the rest of the league. It's really hard to say. I think that is almost as important as this is like visceral feeling that they're right and that they don't want to settle on something where they firmly believe they did nothing wrong legally. You know, I think they would have to not just think that it's theoretically possible they'd be exposed to a verdict in multi-billions, as Dana Walkis has talked about, but they thought they would have to think that that was, you know, fairly likely to before they wanted to settle this, I think. The only question, and I was on radio in St. Louis this week talking about it, and it's funny, question I got was, is there any way, any type of settlement would tie in, hey, the next time we expand, right, just like we're seeing over in the NBA, We'll maybe consider St. Louis because, you know, there's conversations that people are aware of that are occurring in basketball. Adam Silver had noted, hey, that, that they're open to expansion. So all of a sudden those in Seattle, old Supersonics fans, they got all excited. Right. So and that was a team obviously that left to go to Oklahoma City. Is there anything you're hearing that settlement of this case or any type of overtures have been asked? Hey, we'll walk away if you promise us the 33rd NFL franchise, anything like that? I have no specific reporting to indicate that that would satisfy St. Louis. My problem with that, if I'm St. Louis, is that 
that's an easy promise to make. You know, what is the time frame for NFL expansion? You know, of course, they're always looking to grow the business and it's going to happen someday. But there's zero reason to believe that that's sort of a real time thing. It's not like it was in the late 90s when they promised Cleveland they'd come back. It, it was known to be a pathway to expansion. Right now, expansion is, you know, at the very earliest whiteboard phases. They seem to really like where they are with 32. They're doing lots of other things that uh, expansion would, would sort of consume from a strategic standpoint. So that would probably help out a lot in St. Louis, but I, I don't know how much that is worth considering it might be 10 years before we even seriously discuss NFL expansion. The problem I see in settling a case with the promise of a future expansion team is, God, how do you pay the lawyers? I mean, the lead lawyers representing the city and the county have a, a contingent, are they're handling this not on an hourly basis unless I have my facts wrong, but I read somewhere that there's a contingent fee, which is payable upon victory, 35% of the recovery. It'd have to so, be some type of hybrid, you'd think, that some type of payment, and maybe to ease the concern, instead of you getting to the billions, you give them the hundreds of millions that you promised them a team, just, just hypothetically, right, if you're trying to really manage this thing. But there might be some tension here between the lawyers and their clients, because the clients want their pound of flesh. The city... The fans want their pound of flesh. The lawyers want to get paid. And if there is a bona fide offer on the table to settle this case for $200 million, $300, $400 million, for the lawyers, that's a $100 million plus legal fee, but that may not be enough to satisfy the city, the fans. I think the fans and, and, and just the community in general is so um, emotional about this case, and rightfully so, that they had they had something just taken away from them you know, undeservedly, and, and they want their pound of flesh. So I think the prospect of a settlement is going to be really challenging here because the trial judge didn't do any favors to promote a settlement. He essentially left intact all four causes of action. Right. And following summary judgment, I believe the only claims that got paired back were fraudulent misrepresentation claims against the other 31 teams owners, which really doesn't amount to much, but by leaving in breach of contract, unjust enrichment, fraud, tortious interference, there's a wide gulf of possibilities as to what the recoverable damages are. Does it include the, the, the increased franchise value? Does it include the relocation fee? You can get a variance of opinions on that. And ultimately we will not know until an appellate court decides this issue. So the judge has left the parties in a position where they have two diametrically opposite views of what the case looks like from an economic standpoint. The lawyers for the city of St. Louis see this as a, a $3 billion compensatory damages case with the prospect of tacking on maybe five to $10 billion more of punitive damages, whereas the league might see this as a $100 million case based upon out-of-pocket expenditures made by the city of St. Louis in reliance on Cronkies and the league's representation. So they were at exactly or polar opposite viewpoints as to what the case is worth, even assuming the merits to the case are there. That's a good point. And I think that reflects a disconnect even further upstream in the facts of the case between how the public of St. Louis sees this versus how professional lawyers, professional business people see this. And, you know, normally the casual public opinion doesn't carry much weight in the courtroom, but it does here because the plaintiffs are political entities and they've got to keep an eye on the voters in the next elections. And not to put too fine a point on this, but I think if you ask your average resident of St. Louis, 
What would you think of a settlement where the NFL and Stan Kroenke admitted total culpability but didn't have to pay any damages? I think a lot of old St. Louis Rams fans would be pretty happy with that. It's, it's sort of just this, they want to make a case here that they were plainly lied to. And that's more important to them than the money because they're not going to see that money in any meaningful way of things. So I think that sort of disconnect, the difference between a legal contract versus the plain facts that they were led to believe these guidelines mattered more than they did, permeates this entire thing. And it goes to now to those different motivations at a settlement table. If you look at this realistically through the lens of an appellate lawyer, there's some real vulnerability on the third party beneficiary argument because of, you know, certainly you look at the court rulings in in California, and then the standard that Dan Lust identified earlier, which seems to be a very high bar that requires not just, you know, implicit references or totality of the circumstances, but requires clear, direct, explicit intent to include this party as a, as a beneficiary. And you can't tell me by looking at the relocation guidelines that the city and county are over that hump legally. So if you remove that from the equation, and of course, the unjust enrichment really seems like the, the, like the count that's in there simply to, to disgorge the bigger part of the gains enjoyed by the league and the Rams, But when you think about unjust enrichment, I mean, the classic situation of what unjust enrichment is, is if somebody confers a benefit on another party in the absence of a contract, and it would be wrong for that party to retain the benefit of what you conferred over to them. And to use an example, if I go over to your house, you're sitting in your porch and I cut your grass, mow your lawn, I spend three, four hours doing that. We don't have a contract, but you're watching me do it. And I come back later to get paid and you say, well, we don't have a contract. Well, obviously you were aware that I conferred this benefit and you retained the benefit and it would be wrong for you to keep that without paying me. You extrapolate that over to the city of St. Louis situation. How can it be that the conferring of a benefit on the Rams would entitle the city of St. Louis to the windfall of the full upward value of the increased valuation of the Rams franchise due to the move? I would think there needs to be some kind of correlation between the benefit conferred by the city and the wrongful retention of that benefit by the NFL and by the St. Louis Rams. And I'm not sure that that count, one, survives if there's a written contract, or and two, whether it even survives to the extent that it creates a windfall for the city of St. Louis to basically enable them to claim disgorgement of close to $4 billion. Those to me are going to be the two principal issues to deal with on an appeal. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly confident of how a St. Louis jury will rule on this issue, but will a damage award that's predicated on those two big pieces survive appellate review? Will the unjust enrichment claim and will the, intent, the third-party beneficiary claims survive on appeal? There's real risk here for the city of St. Louis and going all the way to trial and getting a victory before a jury only to have defeat end up being the final result when an appellate court gets done with it. So this is a very difficult case to resolve, at least pre-trial. There's a lot of risk on both sides. There's a question as to whether a normal neutral court and jury would, would rule here. And then there's the other question of what we think a St. Louis judge and jury is going to rule here. And I think you know, and Ben, everyone should check out Ben's uh, newsletter that he wrote for Sports Business Journal. He spoke to some high-level people in sports law circles. You know, they, they didn't necessarily agree with uh, Judge McGraw's findings here. And, and that's kind of important to this conversation. And then Dan, as, as you kind of mentioned, I guess two points. You know, if there's some type of decision at the trial court level 
and St. Louis gets a windfall of money. There is usually, uh, not, not all the time, and Dan, you're an appellate lawyer, you could speak to this. I've had my small sliver of appellate cases. You're, you're the guy in that vicinity. But there's usually some type of settlement discussions that occur post-judgment, but pre-appeal. Say, hey, we're going to appeal this. We're going to tie this thing up. Maybe you want to revisit settlement. So that's a, also a conversation that could occur. And then Ben, you know, as a third point, the question is, and Dan, I, I love how you phrased it. St. Louis Rams moved to Los Angeles. They could have moved anywhere. They could have moved to Hawaii. They could have moved to Brooklyn, New York. They could have moved to, you know, middle America, North Dakota, right? But St. Louis didn't cause the Rams to move from St. Louis to Los Angeles. That was independent of them. So as unjust enrichment claims are usually made, it's usually that harmed party that caused you to gain that particular benefit. So they didn't force them to move to Los Angeles, but yet St. Louis is still asking for the benefit and the windfall of going to, to Los Angeles to go back to St. Louis. And it's not as if they were the ones that directed them to Los Angeles. That's usually your typical unjust enrichment claim. So I see Dan's point there. It's not your typical setup for unjust enrichment, but it certainly is a benefit that they're seeking to be disgorged. It's a question of whether they caused that benefit to, to be earned, if that makes sense. So Ben, I want to ask you a couple things about the players in this case before we let you go. Does the NFL, do owners like Jerry Jones and, and Roger Goodell, is there an aversion to having to testify in a courtroom? Is that enough of a disincentive to move the NFL and the Rams to settlement just to keep their you know, executives and team owners out of the courtroom? It is something that they really don't want to have happen, but it is not the uh, dispositive consideration here, I don't think. I think it's you know, it's there's a bit of myth making going on about the privacy concerns of the league, and obviously they move to to, to file under seal whenever they can in any courtroom. They understand that all things being equal, they'd rather have this stuff not be public. But in this case, when there's such a strong sense that they are being wronged by a biased judge and that they will win this ultimately, you know, I don't think they fear going into open court as much as some people think they do. They certainly will do their best to avoid it. But if there's a pervasive sense around the, the owners that really matter in this situation, that they are A, right as a matter of principle, and B, they will ultimately win an appeal. I don't think merely the publicity of a trial is enough to keep them off that path. Not when there's a, a billion dollars or maybe potentially up to $10 billion at stake. I think commit, league officials have testified in trials before. Didn't Paul Tagliabue? Yes, Paul Tagliabue did. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, 30 for 30 will write about, will do something on this five or 10 years out. And it'll be incredible video for people who don't remember it. But, you know, life goes on. And that's why I think the numbers we talked about in the unjust enrichment claim, ratcheting it up is so important. $17 million versus testifying about the Rams private business accounts in open court, easy call pay the money. For a billion, that's a different question. And even the net worth of Stan Kroenke and the battle playing out before the Missouri Supreme Court, I think everybody knows, or at least you know what Stan Kroenke is worth, the granular details of you know his wife's holdings or the non-Rams related holdings. There's not any great mystery that he's a very wealthy man. And all that information will become relevant when assessing the possibility of punitive damages. So I don't think there's any great controversy about concealing what Stan Kroenke is worth for purposes of the discovery in this case, because what lawyers often do in these situations when you're dealing with confidential or sensitive proprietary personal or business information, you enter a confidentiality stipulation to get it ordered by the court. And with the exception of the lawyers and maybe the jury, you know, the information is withheld from public view. So there are mechanisms in place to keep that information from getting on TMZ, uh, so to speak. 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, yes, they're a mechanism. They will do whatever they can. They will push as far as hard as they can to to limit the the risk of testifying in open court. You know, maybe it's a scenario where the testimony is in open court, but all the documents remain under seal, so you don't know anything but what is actually said. And that alone probably would go a long way toward preventing the worst of disclosure, whatever the worst is. Um, because I'm inclined to agree with you. Sometimes I feel like people at this level of business overestimate the importance of privacy. I mean, we know that Stan Kroc has got a lot of money. We know that his family has a lot of money. I think what they worry about isn't so much numbers being disclosed. It's sensitive details and insights into the way they do business. You know, I mean, if, if you get a general order of discovery for every email that mentioned Inglewood from, from the Rams in 2014 to 2015 to 2016, Boy, that's exciting for people like me. Maybe, maybe they had detailed conversations with media executives about this or the mayor's office in LA, you know, something that we can't even possibly imagine that would suddenly tell us a lot more about the way the NFL does business. I mean, to me, that's almost more of a risk going forward than knowing how much money they make, because that could influence future negotiations if we learn something about the way that Cronkie and the commissioner do business. Yeah, could this also inf- influence future NFL relocation possibilities? I imagine. The city of Buffalo might be watching this case with great interest. What do you think about the far-reaching implications of the outcome of this lawsuit and how it impacts other potential relocations? Minnesota, Buffalo stand out as possibilities. I'm so glad you you brought up Buffalo because that was on my list of things that I really want to talk about in this cast. I had forgotten about it. So these relocation guidelines that are at issue here are, are so fascinating because Clearly, the NFL wanted people in Los Angeles or wanted people in St. Louis, indeed, wanted people in all 32 markets to believe that these guidelines are real obligations. But they're in court arguing the exact opposite right now, which is interesting in Buffalo because they brought up the relocation guidelines as reasons that people in Buffalo shouldn't be worried that there's a whole process and the bills have to go through the relocation guidelines. But if this judge is, even if they don't lose in St. Louis, if this judge has sort of blown the lid off the fiction that these guidelines are anything more than a loose agreement among 32 owners who are free to change their minds at any time. And if a precedent were set that that's what it is, then that's got big implications because then people at Buffalo should have no reason to believe that they'll follow the guidelines there. And I mean, I didn't mention this before, you know, in, in the guidelines, it says league traditions disfavor relocations if a club has been well supported and financially successful and is expected to remain so. So, Dan, I know, you know, we kind of went back and forth, but I don't know. And, and there's no other way to read that. This is a public facing statement. League traditions disfavor relocation if a club has been well supported and financially successful and expected to remain to do so. I can see the NFL's reading of, hey, we want to keep teams in certain markets because, you know, it would be beneficial to the league's brand. But I can certainly see the argument from the local markets to say, hey, of course this is intended to benefit us. Of course it, of course it is. Who, why else would it be there? And Ben, to your point, right? And, and Dan, to your point, we all can say this, you know, the city of Buffalo is looking at this closely because there's certainly a reasonable reading of this that it's intended to benefit the city of Buffalo, the city of St. Louis. So not to say that I think it's a, a winning argument, but I certainly see why this is something that would scare the NFL, this particular language, and why I think, you know, Ben and Dan, to your point, that Buffalo and, and these cities have, have relied on this language for years to try to kind of quell the fans' fears. And, and if that's not the case, if the NFL is just kind of committing some type of fraud on all NFL markets like that, that's a really big story here. I think it's important to note that these relocation guidelines were written 
as a memo from then commissioner Paul Tagliabue to 32 owners. And I can say as an NFL reporter that when internal documents like that become public, when people like me see them initially and then they're widely distributed, that means on some level they were intended to be public. If the NFL really wants to keep documents secret, they're pretty good at it. Yes, I will stipulate that it may be an uphill battle to prove that this is in fact a contract, but I do think it's pretty hard to dispute that this wasn't meant in some way to downplay the likelihood of teams leaving their markets in a public way. And I mean, I think the record shows that clearly that was they were pointed to many times by various NFL and Rams officials as a reason to be less concerned than maybe you should be about the Rams leaving St. Louis. So there are uh, big political implications for that, no matter how this court case goes, that it's sort of a little insight into, I think a lot of sports leagues have these sort of rules and constitutions and, you know, things that seem to be etched in stone from on high, but in fact, are just business practices that can be changed at any time. The question, I guess, Ben, in contract law, and Dan can attest this too, the question goes to like this question of detrimental reliance or reasonable reliance, whether or not these other parties knew of this and relied on it to their detriment. And I think that's a lot of, you know, Dan, you know, I understand why, you know, you've kind of separated them in your head as versus breach of contract versus fraud. But it, in my head, at least, the fraud is tied into this diligent efforts concept, which is found in the breach of contract. St. Louis was making diligent efforts. And, you know, then it's certainly maybe a breach of contract because they still move the team. And it's certainly fraud. It could be both. It could fall into both categories in that same same reasoning. So I, I imagine if you ask St. Louis, part of the reason they were making diligent efforts is because that would maybe void this, this 4.3. If they made diligent efforts, that would help save the team. But if it didn't matter... That's a totally different version. So that, that's why the NFL's name is a party here. I, I imagine that's the thought process behind it. Ben, you mentioned that these could be changed at any time. And we're going to wrap up with this really important question. Given how many lawsuits have been spawned from battles over this relocation policy, may we see the day when this lawsuit ends that the NFL revises its relocation policy to tighten it up and make clear who is and who is not an intended beneficiary of these relocation guidelines, because if they were to do that now, that would be almost like an admission of liability. Right. Potentially going forward, I think the NFL's relocation guidelines need greater clarity on a number of levels, including the issue of who is the intended beneficiary of this other than the NFL. Well, I think that would be an obvious thing to do as soon as this matter is settled, throw in one more clause there that says this does not grant any contractual rights to any local jurisdictions. So that would be easy to do. But, you know, I can't help but wonder if comparing 1999 to 2001 or, or 2021 in terms of our overall sort of awareness and cultural savvy about the business of sports, maybe you just throw the guidelines out altogether and just come to the world and say, we are the NFL. We are an association of 32 owners. We can do what we want within the bounds of leases our teams have signed. To me, looking at it in hindsight, all the guidelines have done have unnecessarily hemmed the NFL in when in fact they're for-profit businesses. They're always within the confines of leases and other legal arrangements. They're always free to go to markets that are better for them to do business. So maybe you scrap the guidelines altogether. That opens up antitrust liability potentially, which is the reason they enacted these guidelines. So it's almost like a, a catch-22. I would just think the relocation guidelines have to be promulgated in a way to lay out a real process with meaningful language and with meaningful community participation, and then make clear that ultimate discretion in whether those guidelines have been satisfied is at the dis reasonable discretion. Oh, then when you say the word reasonable, that, that also could be litigated. But there could be language that protects the NFL's flank much more 
more than this ambiguity, uh, which has existed for so many years and will ultimately lead to litigation every time a team relocates. There's no doubt about that. Right. I think that that's probably a fair point. I don't think you should really get rid of the guidelines. I think I was just maybe taking an extreme, some hyperbole to make a point that, you know, a lot of people think, or not think, I shouldn't say that, but but I feel like there's a sense in the public in some cities that these are quasi-public entities, that they're bound by the rules and procedures of courts and the governments. And for the most part, they're not, unless they've got a binding lease. So, no, I think you're right about that. Maybe just more explicit guidelines about who has power and doesn't under the guidelines. But one quick point before, before we wrap up, I know I've been going on at some length. This may be a bit of an isolated situation with LA, because when you think about the compelling interest from the NFL, it might be worth running over the world with the steamroller to get the Rams to Los Angeles because of the extraordinary value that only Los Angeles provides. Moving Buffalo to Austin or Buffalo to Birmingham. Yeah. Is the marginal gain in revenue worth the hassle, worth the risk of upsetting Buffalo and getting the court there? Probably not. But I, you have to imagine the NFL thought maybe we'll have some trouble here, but at the end of the day, it's worth it because now we've got two teams back in Los Angeles. And Kroenke will pay the full bill anyway, so it's not our problem. <laughs> well, right. That's a totally different dynamic. We can get into a long discussion about what that means for among the 32. Well, Ben, thank you for uh, joining us on Conduct Detrimental with your debut appearance and, and kind of elucidating some of these issues you know, in the upcoming trial, which I'm sure you'll be uh, monitoring, maybe even traveling to St. Louis for the trial. So hopefully we'll not interfere with your coverage of the Super Bowl, that the trial will come to an end before Super Bowl week, but that looms as a possibility. But thank you for joining us and spending time walking us through some of these issues on the business and legal side. Sure thing, anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ben. So that was Ben Fisher of the Sports Business Journal. Dan, we got into a lot. What'd you think? You know, that's part of the problem with this litigation. There are so many issues that can be addressed, you know, all the different claims, elements of the claims, damages that are attributable to those claims. We could have gone on for a couple of hours. Obviously, we're limited to trying to have a general conversation within one hour. But one thing that I overlooked that I wanted to really stress, while I am dubious that the city of St. Louis can recover as compensatory damages, the upward value of the Rams franchise due to the move to L.A., I'm not sure that that fits within a traditional unjust enrichment disgorgement theory, but where it could come into play, and this is really important, and I've spent the weekend researching punitive damages. I think what the court can do in this case and what the jury could do if properly instructed by the court is to consider the Rams' windfall and the NFL's windfall in quantifying punitive damages. So while the $3 billion increased valuation of the Rams franchise may not fit into a traditional breach of contract or um, unjust enrichment theory, it could come into play on the punitive side. And the judge could maybe award, as part of the punitive damages, the NFL's windfall, the Rams' windfall, and then consider the fact that the National Football League is a multi-billion dollar corporation and that the league, the teams, and the owners, we're talking about a very well-heeled, multi-billion dollar machinery here. So the league's greatest fear, I believe, at the end of the day, shouldn't be the individual compensatory damage categories, but more importantly, the prospect for punitive damages, which under U.S. Supreme Court decisional law could really properly be a ratio of 
10 to 1, 9 to 1, 8 to 1, that's where the NFL is going to get socked. And the burden, or at least the mission of the plaintiff's attorneys and the litigants in this case, is to create viable legal theories that could at least yield close to a billion dollar damage recovery under an actual damages theory. Because once you get up to that high enough level, then you could get into the prospect of having eight, nine, ten billion dollars of worth of damages. I'm just afraid, or at least concerned, that the actual damage recovery in this case could be limited to the city's out-of-pocket expenditures, which did not exceed, I believe, twenty million dollars. So it really depends on what theory the city of St. Louis prevails upon, assuming that they prevail, and what damages are recoverable under those theories, because that will ultimately act as the predicate for an award of punitive damages at a ratio of between five to one and ten to one. I guess in, in wrapping, and I think the important part, and Dan, you know, I, I try to do in my prep for the podcast, I, I had missed, I guess there was that unredacted version that came out that Stan Kroenke is indemnifying all the other NFL owners. That is a very big piece of this equation, right? It's a very big piece of settlement. But again, you know, I, I want to stress that, right? You know, 99.9% of cases settle. And I, I, you know, we always mention this. They settle at some point in the case. Maybe they settle before depositions, before trial, right? Maybe on the courthouse steps. But this is just one, you know, there's all these different elements that are lining up in this case where it just doesn't seem like the city of St. Louis is going to offer a number that's necessarily fair. And if Kroenke on the other side is the one that's footing the bill, right? That makes settlement much harder. You don't have 20 plus NFL owners. You got one NFL owner. And we talked on the podcast whether this could wipe out his net worth which is such an insane thought for someone that has tens of billions of dollars but when you're dealing with an nfl team leaving and the disruption it's caused the st louis market allegedly it's not so insane that you know he's thinking about this right he's putting his insurance carrier on notice right he's trying to line up what his assets are it's a really scary thought and dan i think i'll just say this right this is an issue that's particular to st louis but the nfl is a defendant in this case so you might not be from st louis Right. And you might not care about Stan Kroenke, but this conversation is important to essentially every single market, every single market that has a team. Right. And every single market that's trying to get a team re relocated to them. And this could be a conversation that occurs in NFL, Major League Baseball, yeah. NBA, NHL. This is a really high level conversation. You just don't get here. And I think the scary proposition, Dan, is the St. Louis judge. St. Louis jury. So you and I can have our opinions as to what this should happen again in a neutral playing field, neutral site, right? This is not a neutral site. This is home cooking. So I think it's such a fascinating narrative as we head into the trial of this. Yeah, I think ultimately as it winds its way through the courts of appeal, and, and there are so many appealable issues here, Dan. I mean, just starting with whether the city is a, a third-party beneficiary, whether there was a contract, what damages are recoverable, were the damages excessive. When an appeal is ultimately filed, assuming it doesn't settle, there are going to be so many grounds for appeal or points of appeal raised. And the trial judge did not do the parties any favor here in advancing settlement because he didn't dismiss any of the claims. And from the vantage point of the city of St. Louis, this case in the, from their mindset is worth one to $4 billion. From the NFL's standpoint, they view the damage recovery that would be proper as being probably being no more than 20 to $50 million based upon you know, lost revenues and out-of-pocket expenditures. So the vision of what this case is about is markedly different depending on what side of the fence you're on. And if the judge had pared down the lawsuit a little bit, we could potentially be much closer to a settlement. And I just don't see how that gap is bridged given the extreme differences in how each side views the worth of the case. You know, I think you're right. I spoke to your colleague, Dan Kaplan, over at The Athletic, and I said it's a loss across the board. I don't think there's any other way to, to push this, but at the end of the day, what is summary judgment? Summary judgment is just saying whether there are tribal issues of fact. It doesn't speak to whether the judge 
thinks one side is right or one side is wrong. He just says, hey, there's enough here that a jury can figure this out. But Dan, as you and I keep pointing out, the jury has also got some home cooking. So, you know, it's certainly interesting. But Dan, that said, quick legal life advice. Uh, so we didn't do it last week when I missed the podcast. Um, Dan, you're giving me a face. You're going to like this one. You know, Dan, you and I, uh, in our careers, we've been at firms, uh, all, all sorts of different firms up and down. I know, you know, just in the timing of the year, people are looking for summer you know, fall internships are looking to try to get a job at the end of their 3L year, or maybe you're just looking to switch jobs and you're a seasoned attorney. I've been very fortunate to be at various employers who are okay with what we do at Conduct Detrimental, okay with a series of tweets going out during the course of the day. But when you're looking at jobs, you, you want to just go to a place where you could see yourself having the flexibility to do something in the side, right? To try to develop business for your firm. So, you know, if you're at a firm that, that really has a closed door policy, they don't want you making noise, you know, that's gotta be factored in. It's not always about, you know, the hours and the flexibility if we can work from home. Certainly whether or not you can put on a kind of public facing appearance is certainly very important, not just, you know, for your psyche, but it's important as to whether or not you can develop business, develop clients. You can't really do that unless you can kind of get out from behind the scenes. Uh, Dan, I know you and I, uh, it was kind of your path to where you are now. Well, every one of my clients for the first three years of practice, pretty much almost every one of my clients is six degrees of separation from having met them at some public event where I spoke. And I never would have generated you know, any business whatsoever from behind my desk within a law firm. And it's, it was really important and instrumental to me at you know, sort of during my run up to going out in private practice to have all these other opportunities where I wrote and I spoke and you know, the ability to generate business for myself or, you know, if you're listening and you work for a law firm, the ability to rainmake for a law firm is really inextricably tied to your profile outside of work and being able to be visible outside of the office through, through scholarship, writing, speaking, and, and so forth. It was essential to me. Someone very smart at one of my earlier law firms, I had done something internally, which everyone was very happy with. And he said, you should write about it. And I go, Who, why am I writing about it? Like, I got enough credit internally. And he goes, no, like, just trust me, there, there's something here. So I, you know, this smart partner, I, I won't name him by name, but he, he knows who he is. He said, you should reach out to the New York Law Journal. They, they probably would publish something on this. You know what they did? And then, you know, that, that kind of set off my path. So yeah, you know, writing is, is you know, immeasurable public, you know, in the post-COVID world, going to conferences. Uh, and then, Dan, what we do on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, all that stuff is certainly very important. But that's my legal life advice. That if you're, I have a lot of people reaching out to me about what job to take, whether this opportunity, that opportunity. And I always ask them that question. They always kind of take a step back. Oh, I didn't think of that. So I think that should just be on people's radars. So, Dan, you know, obviously we had a long episode. Anything else to add before we put this in the books? No, I think, I think uh, that was a pretty comprehensive look at the Rams relocation lawsuit. It's a subject that we're going to revisit undoubtedly, maybe several times between now and January and January 10th, which is scheduled to be the start of the trial. I'm just fascinated by the interesting timing of this trial coming nearly on the heels of the Super Bowl played at the Los Angeles Rams new facility. This is delicious with irony. So I'm almost hoping that this is a live controversy that bleeds into Super Bowl week. It would really be a delicious irony. And it's not out of the, the realm of possibility, given how many witnesses are going to testify. 32 defendants. This is a case that with a jury is certainly going to last more than a month if it does not settle. If you are new to Conic Touch Mental, make sure you rate, review, subscribe. We cover the intersection of sports and law as always. I'm Dan Lust. I'm at Sports Law Lust. Dan Wallach is at Wallach Legal. The show at Con Detrimental. And of course, if you're looking for more insight to the intersection of sports and law, we have conductdetrimental.com. For myself and Dan, we will see you next week on another episode. <laughs>
kind of detrimental. 